0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and
1: welcome to episode 458 with Steve Ritter. Steve is talking about teams and the natural cycles of change that we all go through and how to deal with that well, including how to correct some bad or toxic behaviors optimally. So you'll learn, one, where teams get stuck the most often, two, how to grow and deepen over time as a team, and three, why there's still hope for disengaged team members. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash app 458. Now, here's Steve's story. Steve Ritter is the founder and CEO of the Center for Team Excellence. He's on the faculty of the Center for Professional Excellence at Elmhurst College, where he's earned the President's Award for Excellence in Teaching. That's a lot of excellence. He is the acclaimed author of the 2009 Amazon Top 50 business book, Team Clock, A Guide to Breakthrough Teams, and the 2019 release, The Four Stages of a Team, How Teams Thrive and What to Do When They Don't. Thanks to Steve for spending some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. No. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts: eighty-six percent of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedincom awesome. That's LinkedIn.com/bea.we.s.o.m.e. As in, you are being awesome. Be awesome to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Steve. Steve, welcome back to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast.
2: Pete, I am thrilled to be welcomed back. It has been how many years since we talked the first time on episode thirty-six, I believe.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was well almost three because that you were you were one of the first uh, well, as as someone I know. <laughs>
2: Yeah. So a lot has changed and a lot of things haven't changed since then. So
1: uh, I hear you. Yeah. Well, yeah. And we're going to talk about both of those things. So first I want to get updated on. So you do a lot of fun, uh, garage band rocking with your, your crew. What's the latest there?
2: Well, you know, all right. So technically speaking, uh, the music hub is a basement, not a garage. Uh, And I just (laughs) realized in thinking about this, that we've actually performed 1% of the time. This group of guys got together for the first time in 1985. So I think we're in year 34 and we get together once a month and we mostly just improvise with pizza and cold beverages. And in that time, we've had four gigs. So when we have a gig coming up, we get to work and make sure it's as tight as possible. But that's not our natural state of being. Our natural state of being is uh, to improvise and have fun and see where it goes.
1: Well, you've been improvising, having fun and seeing where things go. There's a terrible segue, but committed to it with your, your work in teams. And, and so you've just recently released uh, another book, the four stages of a team and your, your previous book, uh, team clock. We talked about way back when, so can you orient us for those who are not as familiar with uh, the first one, sort of, what is your team philosophy framework and, and, and what's new?
2: Well, so the four stages of team was the book, that followed the why and the model. So, so Team Clock, a guide to breakthrough teams is now a 10 year old book and that followed about 30 years of discovery of a method for what makes teams effective and how teams sustain and thrive through change after change after change. And we had been doing the work for about 30 years, but had not trademarked the methodology and hadn't published the book. And so we had a lot of knowledge, but we felt like we had to get the why out there. So a decade later and approximately 300 team engagements later, there was a lot of clinical evidence about that it works and why it works and how it works and so to the why in the model of team clock came the how of the four stages of a team the subtitle of the book is how teams thrive and what to do when they don't so in a nutshell the model was designed after an analog clock where each number around the clock from one o'clock back to 12 represents a stage of the team's development. And the notion of using a clock was because teams operate in cyclical ways, not in straight line trajectories. The inspiration for the model back around 1980 came in a graduate school class after learning about uh, Bruce Tuckman's 1965 team model of forming, storming, norming, and performing, which makes a lot of sense at face value when you look at teams who come together and they form and then they have some conflict and they storm and then they establish some ground rules. Those are their norms that enables them to perform. And then congratulations, now you have a team. But when I looked at that, I realized that none of the teams in my life and none of the relationships in my life went from beginning to middle and end, then called it done or over. Mm -hmm. All the teams that I saw operated in cycle after cycle, after cycle, after cycle. And so the clock became a way of saying, so what happens in the early phase? And then once you establish that, what happens next? And if you establish that, where does it go after that? And when you repeat those cycles over and over, how do they grow and deepen over time? So the simplest model was that in the first stage, which is investment, teams are figuring out their norms, Teams are getting aligned on their mission and their values. Teams are learning how to disagree and how to manage conflict in a professional and constructive way. And that provides an infrastructure and a platform and a foundation to be able to do things that feel much more like teamwork, which is trust and collaboration and sharing and those kinds of things. And so the second stage is trust phase where teams learn to connect and teams learn to share respect And teams learn to be accountable to themselves and to each other. So now when you get to that stage of the team, you've created a sufficient platform to be able to be really innovative and to explore and to experiment and to discover and to be creative and to take advantage of the differences that you have on the team and to take some smart risks and move forward. And that creates change, and that's the fourth stage, which is we call distancing, because when you're in a state of change, you kind of have to step back and reevaluate and refuel and kind of recalibrate and refocus on whatever your new circumstances are, which takes you back to the investment phase and kind of resetting your ground rules and resetting your values and mission and making sure that everyone's together on that. And so that's uh, kind of where this started. And where it went was, here's the model. We believe that all relationships and all teams and all organizations, when they're healthy, operate in these cycles. And now we have 300 plus case examples over the last decade to help people who are going through challenges on their teams see how other teams in all walks of life have handled those same kinds of challenges.
1: Well, 300. Well done. That's uh, that's awesome. <laughs> Thanks. I remember back in my day before uh, the book was written. And uh, yeah. yeah, so that was fun to see it evolve over, over the trajectory here. Well, so then, let's dig in a little bit to that subtitle. How teams thrive, and what to do when they don 't how do teams thrive you know, like what what are the fundamental ingredients so so they, they go in a cycle, okay, and so I imagine there are a couple of make or break things that could happen at each uh phase in the cycle that really matter
2: absolutely, so you think about the investment phase of a team. people are either baking in healthy norms they 're baking in unhealthy norms they're either moving forward with clarity around their values and their mission and their vision, or they're moving forward without that clarity, or they're building in unhealthy conflict versus healthy conflict. So when you think about the things that teams are trying to establish as a foundation that will be reliable... It's just that. It's how do we treat each other from day to day under normal circumstances? How do we treat each other from day to day under stressful circumstances? Are we all moving in the same direction toward the same goal? Have we created space for differences on the team? So we may have the same destination, but there may be many paths to that destination. And have we made room for the diversity of all those paths? And so the idea in the investment phase is to get clarity or around norms and mission and values and vision and how conflict should be handled. The place that people get stuck there is that that's hard work. And usually that phase comes after a distancing phase or a change phase when people are really emotionally and physically depleted from managing change. And so it's difficult to work on infrastructure and build a foundation when you're really depleted from going through a change. And oftentimes that's meant a change of leadership or a change of direction. And not everyone is in uh, agreement about whether the new leader is a good leader or whether the new direction is a new direction. And so that's the place that people get stuck there. Uh, Interestingly, the place that people get stuck in the trust phase is in one of two ways. One is either that it's working and people are being accountable to the mission and the values and people are feeling connected and respected and accountable and it's very comfortable. And the place that people get stuck is that it, why would you want to sacrifice comfort to do something innovative where it's a little more apprehensive or scary? And so people like to get into their comfort zone in the trust phase. The other place that people get stuck is when that's broken down in some way and the team doesn't have a psychological safety to be able to take risks Uh, and trust is a problem on the team, it's really uh, virtually impossible to move forward because what's supposed to happen next after trust builds on a team is for people to explore and innovate and be creative. And when there's not psychological safety on the team, it's really hard to take the risk uh, of exploring. And then the exploration phase, the innovation phase has reasons that people get stuck as well, because you're out on a limb and you're trying something new and the chances that that might fail are part of the discovery process. And not everyone feels comfortable with being out on a limb and not everyone feels comfortable with taking a risk. And so and not everyone feels comfortable with diversity. And so in order for innovation and creativity to really thrive on a team, people have to be comfortable being out on a limb and taking risks and having diversity of ideas and of backgrounds on the team. And then inevitably that creates change. And that's, you know, the the obvious reason that people get stuck during the change phase is that most living things prefer stability and when things are changing it depletes energy and it's hard to imagine a better future when you're in the middle of a loss or a change and so kind of like the a night's sleep or the dormant phase of a tree in winter sometimes we have to step back and refuel before we can step forward and get back into something that's different than the way it used to be.
1: And so I think a lot of the beauty of this model is is that it, it, especially if you've been on a particular team for a while, you can sort of see it like, oh, yeah, this happens. You know, there are cycles, there are are phases and you can't sort of expect it to be all innovation all the time. (laughs) You know we're banging out new ideas twenty four seven for for years at a time, so so that's pretty handy there. So then uh, I'd love to get your take. Then maybe you could start with an example. Let's talk about a, a workplace and how you saw some things transform from unhealthy to healthy.
2: You know your introduction to that question it makes me think of a different case example than I had considered sharing with you. Most of the. Case examples that uh, we see involve teams that are struggling and are trying to uh, get moving again about You know, you joked that teams just can't be all innovation all the time. But the case example I'm thinking of, actually, that was their goal. Their goal was Mm. to be able to be all innovation all the time. And the challenge they needed to get past was in order to be able to do that, you have to go through the other stages, too. You have to manage the fears around innovation. You have to manage the change that you create. You have to lose people. You have to reinvest, you have to rebuild trust, there have to be glitches, you have to get through those glitches. But they, the the team that I'm thinking of, and I didn't end up using them as a case example in the book, is a team that is so attentive to the wellness of their entity as a team, that they never let themselves get stuck. They never let conflict become destructive. They never let disrespect take any footing on the team. They never let fear uh, get in the way of trying something new. And they embrace change as a healthy component of their process. And the result of that is that they are probably the most innovative team that I have been aware of in the history of my career. And they know that. They know they've become that. And and as a result, they have become a powerful magnet of recruitment internationally. People come from all over the world to be on this team, and they have become an impressive uh, group of people that retains their talent. Nobody wants to leave this team as well. And the reason that they're a good story is because they didn't begin this way. When I've been involved with This particular team for about six years. And when we began, it was very similar to many team stories. This is a medical team in an academic center. And it's not unusual for a couple things to be true on medical teams and academic centers. One is that the politics of universities based medical centers are rich with academic politics.
1: The politics are rich. What, what, a, what a word
2: choice. <laughs> <laughs> Oppressively annoying. Exactly. So <laughs> oftentimes you'll get a leadership change that where the natural response is for the faculty to reject the new leader or to fall into factions in some way. And then you get the same dynamics that you get in any group situation. The Gallup organization has been measuring engagement and disengagement for decades. And so it's not unusual to have about 20% of your people unhappy anytime there's been a change. And oftentimes people spend all of their energy acting out that unhappiness and then preventing the team from moving forward. So you've got a team that's trying to pursue clinical excellence and you've got a team that's trying to be more productive and to grow. And you've got a team that wants to be more magnetic in their recruitment and and you've got a team that wants to research and discover new ways of doing things, but you've got 20% toxic broken dysfunctional people who are trying to hold everyone back at the same time and so the idea is to be able to somehow get around the corner from the six of the 30 people on the team that seem to want to use up all the team's energy moving forward and so ultimately we end up in a situation with teams like this that i call stay stuck or move forward There's usually a moment of truth in teams like this where the vast majority of people in the room want to move forward, but a vocal minority with power wants to stay stuck. And you see this in medical centers, you see this in law firms, you see this on professional sports teams, you see this in public schools, you see it everywhere that the powerful vocal minority oftentimes is enough to keep uh, the majority stuck in some way. and So the stay stuck or move forward moment is uh, the team as a whole has to decide whether to empower the bullies or whether to move forward and invite the bullies or whoever is bringing the dysfunctional behavior onto the team, how to mitigate that. And usually it starts with some clarity around mission and values that everyone on the team can agree that we want the finest clinical excellence or we want the finest patient experience or we want the highest associate satisfaction scores or whatever that happens to be. And if everyone can agree to those values and everyone can agree to that mission, then it's a question of whether people can be accountable to that and whether people can hold themselves and each other accountable to that so at that point you're giving everyone the equivalent of a striped referee shirt Mm -hmm. and you're empowering people uh from top to bottom of the organization to blow the whistle or call throw a flag whenever there's a foul and a foul would be that we didn't respect somebody else's opinion or the foul could be that we don't view conflict as a productive and powerful change agent or that change isn't being managed effectively. And so when people are empowered to call a foul or to throw a flag or to blow a whistle and say, hey, that's not what we all agreed on, and you do that enough times, the culture starts to shift. And eventually, people who are in that dysfunctional, toxic group either leave or they find a way to get in stride with everybody else. And so usually at that point, you're deciding how to kind of reward and invest in the engaged people. You're deciding how to coach the under-engaged people into engagement, and you're deciding how to mitigate the disengaged people, whether that's inviting them into the culture on your terms or whether that's excusing them from the organization in some kind of a human resources 101 performance improvement plan or whatever it happens to be. And it's surprising how the power of a culture that has shifted in that direction will take on its own momentum and that the right things will happen. Either the performance improvement plans will result in the intended outcome, or people will fold into the culture and negative leaders will become positive leaders. So the team that I'm thinking of that became the most innovative team I've ever seen took on that challenge and spent probably almost two years eradicating the dysfunction. Uh, They call it a bullyectomy. They (laughs) they surgically removed the people who were hurting the team. As talented as they might have been, as condescending and arrogant as they may have been have, for being the smartest person in the room, if they were hurting the team, they didn't belong on the team anymore. And so after about two years of uh, a successful boolectomy or two, this team got to the business of defining clinical excellence and using research and discovery to innovate new things and becoming a magnet for recruitment for the world's best talent. And if you think about the the old spinning the plate on the stick Thing where the plate wobbles, you got to spin it again to keep it moving. They just keep spinning the plate over and over and over again. And they never let anything dysfunctional or anything toxic to the team take root. They know that it's going to happen every once in a while because humans are humans, but they address it proactively, even if that means an uncomfortable conversation.
1: And so then some of those norms that you're talking about establishing there that everyone had the, the right to, to referee, what might those sound like in practice in terms of particular behaviors?
2: Uh, how we treat each other, civility, um, respect, uh, appreciation of differences, embracing change. Uh, those kinds of things, Pete. The common sense things that you would have in your marriage, that I would have in my marriage, the ways I would treat my children, the way I would treat my best friend, the way I treat my spouse, are the same ground rules that you want in a team or an organization. They just apply on a larger scale. And so it gets down to the way we treat each other, and the way we talk to each other, and the way that we value the diversity on the team, and the way that we manage conflict and adversity in a in a Kind of a poised and resilient way. It's basic things you learned in kindergarten, kind of values that somehow get a pass in a workplace, but it wouldn't get a pass with a best friend or with a lover, Mm -hmm. right? So one of the things that we. Have learned is that the recipe for what makes a team effective is no different than the recipe for what makes a relationship effective, whether that's a coworker, whether that's a lover, or whether that's a friend, or whether that's a teammate on a recreational softball team you play on the weekends. The scale is different when it comes to trust, for instance. An interpersonal team may be more intimate. But the expectation that people treat each other with kindness and with civility and with understanding and with productive conflict resolution and poison resilience and flexibility during periods of adversity and change are common sense. And really the refereeing is giving people permission to embrace that and to call themselves and each other out. If in yours and my relationship, which goes back a few years now, if I treated you in a way that was disrespectful, even if I didn't realize I was being disrespectful, I would hope that you would bring that to my attention. I'd hope that you would say, Steve, when you said X, it caused this in me. And I would, I should have the maturity to say, whoa, I had no idea. I did not intend to hurt you, but I see that I did. And I own that. And that's not going to happen again. And I'm sorry for what I did. Mm -hmm. I should be able to do that in any relationship. One of the exercises that we do with teams is we ask everyone to think about three relationships in their lives, uh, at least one in the workplace where there is an an unresolved, crucial conversation that ought to happen. And and the reason it's unresolved is because it's uncomfortable or because you're afraid it might make it worse or whatever it happens to be. And then what is the issue? How do you want to address that issue? And what would be the measurement of the outcome of that being in a better place? Oftentimes when we see teams move to healthier cultures, that's what's happening behind the scenes is that people who have been not getting along for a long time, figure out why that is and what they need to do about that. I had a a manager uh, in a medical team last week say, I don't understand why she doesn't like me anymore. We used to be friends. Now that's a very personal exchange, Mm -hmm. but that caused her to go back to her and say that directly to her, which was my intervention with her as, have you asked her what happened? Um, And so she went back and said, what, What happened between us. And it ended up being something in the grand scheme of things that might have been petty. Uh, I found out that you made more money than I did, and I've never (laughs) felt the same about you since. You know, something like that. But now it's being talked about. If you take the kind of Crucial Conversations 101 curriculum and methodology, oftentimes that's what people need to do. And these are Most human resources departments are equipped with people that have the talent to move people through conflict resolution, to move people through crucial conversations, to move people through change management, innovation technique. It's really just giving the team permission to be well and to act on the common sense things that make relationships strong.
1: Yeah, and I guess that's what I'm wondering when it comes to common sense things. I mean, a lot of the things we're talking about, you know, hate poise in the midst of, of conflict or, uh, you know, respecting conflict as a, as a tool to bring about good things. I guess they're almost a little bit subject to interpretation, I guess. And if someone were to sort of throw a flag and say, you know, you're not doing this, and they could say, yes, I am. <laughs> you know, it's almost a little bit, not uh, not to be sort of like childish or elementary, but but I could see like... I guess there's this tension I'm thinking through with regard to, are you going to really spell it out in terms of like explicit rules? Like we do not say that's a stupid idea here, you know, or do you leave it at at a higher level of abstraction? Like we'll be respectful in our discourse.
2: Sometimes it is childish and immature. And sometimes you're calling people out for not playing nice in the sandbox. I had a situation where probably the most highly educated group of people in the room, we're listening to their assessment results. And so when you get assessment results that say there is an undercurrent of disrespect in the workplace, for instance, that scores a really high mean and a really high standard deviation statistically, which means people feel really strong about it and there are some people who are affected more dramatically than others and you give that piece of data to the room and you say you 12 people responded to this survey in a strong way saying there is an undercurrent of disrespect on this team or words and actions that undermine the team are tolerated by leadership these are survey questions assessing the team's wellness that give very clear, valid metrics around what's broken with the team, then you get the conversations about what does that mean. So I've had a person raise their hand and say, I think that's me. I think I'm the one that people are talking about. And the truth is I don't handle stress very well. And I don't know what to do about it because when I'm stressed, I don't treat people very nicely. And I guess people learned to tolerate that with me. And I don't want to be that way, but I don't know what to do about it. And then you get four other people to raise their hand and say, I'd be happy to help you with that. And then that person grows in some way. I had a person once in a public school setting where uh, after about a year of the majority of the faculty trying to wrest control back from the handful of bullies that, that were bullying the rest of the faculty, raised her hand and said, I know that everyone thinks I'm one of the bullies and everyone thinks that I'm one of the disengaged people. The reality is I I was and I don't want to be that person. And I see where we're going and I want to move in that direction. I'm just slow to change. So if you can bear with me, I'm coming. And everyone embraced that. Everyone embraced the fact that people are allowed to repair themselves. People are willing to accept folks who are on their own journey to be a better teammate in some way. So usually the data from the assessment, whether you do that formally with the online assessment that gives us the rigorous metrics of what's going on in every aspect of the team, or whether you do it informally with just asking a couple of simple questions usually leads to a story. So why are we seeing this data? Tell me what's going on with the team that makes this data portray this aspect of the team. And people will tell you a story and the story will usually lead to what do we need to do to fix this?
1: Well, and it's really beautiful as you describe these conversations, you know, they're just so open, so real. You might say vulnerable. It's like, yeah, this is what's really going on with me you all. <laughs> and it's beautiful. And I think some listeners might be like, wow, you know, we are miles away from people being able to disclose at that level. So, how does one get there in the
2: first place? That's what happens when, so if the foundation are norms and values that creates a platform upon which to build trust and there is psychological safety in the team, then those are exactly the kinds of conversations that happen Mm -hmm. where people will ask for coaching, where people will ask for help with something. You work from the assumption that everyone's doing their best. And most of us, perform pretty well when there's no stress. But under stress, some of us regress and some of us get immature. We're not always at our best all the time. And so when you've gone through the labor of building an environment of accountability and a culture of accountability that strengthens trust, those are exactly the kinds of conversations that follow where people will say, I would like help with this. I'm not being my best self. I'm holding the team back. I want to be a part of this moving forward what do i need to do to get there
1: and for the disengaged bullies and uh, folks who are just not having it you mentioned some coaching and, and performance improvement plans how does that process work
2: well you would be surprised at how many people who are in that category find other places to work on their own for some people dysfunctional relationships is their currency in life and when a culture shifts to a healthier, more trusting environment, they're not getting their needs met because their needs are met by making other people feel small. (laughs) And so they have to go somewhere where they can make that happen. So you always have a small number of people who find a way to leave uh, for those reasons. But you'll also be surprised at how many people don't want to be broken and they've never really had an opportunity. Uh, We call them the typical tippable, uh, disengaged folks who can be tipped into the culture. And so disengaged people rarely become under people. They usually buy in and they say, I want to use my leadership skills in a different way than being a negative leader. How can I be a part of the solution here? Mm -hmm. And so I guess you know when you think of pips when you think of performance improvement plans they're generally designed to get somebody out they give people a tight set of accountabilities and a tight time frame to perform them, which guarantees failure, and then you catch them on the failure and you have a reason to let them go. That's usually what a performance improvement plan is designed to do in human resources circles. But a true performance improvement plan gives someone a path to grow and to improve. And if you surround them with the right coaching and the right resources, you end up with conversations like your peers say that, you've not been easy to play with in the sandbox. I'm guessing that this isn't just a problem in the workplace. Perhaps this is a problem in your family and in your social circle as well. You're 43 years old. Do you want to do something about this? Is this okay with you? Because if you want to do something about this, we have resources that can help you. And you'd be surprised at uh, people's ability to transform when provided an opportunity to get coached.
1: That's good. What You said about the, the drama or the conflicted relationships as their currency in life that just reminded me of a quote from uh, The Office with Kelly Kapoor said that uh, she had to choose between two suitors. And she said, Ravi makes me so happy. And Ryan causes so much drama. So I just need to figure out which of those is more important to me. (laughs)
2: Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, but if you think about that, those of us, and I'm one of them who thrive on conflict and who thrive on change, I've put three kids through college and built two businesses on assisting people with conflict and assisting people with change. And so there's a positive way to have that surround you in life. It's okay to be fueled by chaos as long as you manage it in a professional and a respectful way. It's okay to have conflict as long as you are mature and adult about the whole thing. And so there are people in life whose competency is to be good under pressure during periods of significant change and conflict. And those people often become... Advisors and consultants and coaches and therapists and teachers and mentors and uh, those kinds of professions because they can elevate other people into healthier places and elevate relationships and teams into healthier places. And so conflict and chaos sometimes gets a bad rap. Understood. Yeah.
1: And so then I guess I want to talk a little bit about the, the innovation side of things. So once you've got some of those, those norms well-established and we're invested and then there's the, the trust is working and, and we're sort of owning our stuff and, and sharing it, uh, what are some of the best practices for making the most of the innovation phase when you're in it?
2: Oh, well, I think it's uh, willingness to live with an unsolved problem to begin with. Innovation always starts with an unsolved problem and being willing to experiment and explore and create and fail a couple of times to be able to discover a new way of looking at that problem. And so all of those dynamics require someone to feel safe and trusted in an environment that supports that kind of thing. And so I guess a rich and fertile garden of diversity uh, full of people who are unafraid to take smart risks and to stumble and fall a couple times is usually what creates uh, new ideas. Whereas uh, the opposite, where people hold on to the status quo and aim for safety, uh, usually doesn't result in new ways of thinking about things or doing things. And so it all goes back to the foundation of common values and common goals that allow for a culture of accountability that enables a team to have the psychological safety for people to take risks. Because innovation is all about providing an atmosphere that I suppose has a safety net underneath it so that people can be out on a limb and take risks and try things without having to worry about Whether the amygdala portion of the brain screams fear and tells you not to do it, that you go ahead and use your, you know, cerebral cortex to analyze and interpret and make decisions and try things, even though your fear center is screaming, don't do it. And usually that happens most effectively when the team has created an atmosphere of collaboration and psychological safety so that falling or stumbling or failing are not a big deal. They're actually fuel for the next round of innovation.
1: Well, Steve, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things.
2: Well, I think that uh, you're going to see a barrage of social media hype around the book, The Four Stages of a Team, How Teams Thrive and What to Do What They Don't. I'm excited about this uh, book, but I also want to Uh, let your audience know that there's a 10-year archive of blogs on the teamclock.com website that are categorized in every area of team effectiveness that you would imagine. And so while the book is a few hundred pages of best practice and case study and how-to, there's a, a deep archive of blogs available on the website as well. So I would point people in that direction.
1: Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you thought inspiring?
2: You know, I think the last time you asked me that, I quoted Seth Godin, and I think I want to quote Seth again. Seth was uh, kind enough to endorse my first book. He talked about the importance of taking responsibility for what it means to join or to lead a team. And in his most recent book is titled This is Marketing. And he says in that book, people don't want what you make they want what it will do for them. They want the way it makes them feel. And so that might be more connected, or that might mean peace of mind, or that might be status in some way. And so I think about that quote all the time. I think about that quote when I listen to your podcast, for instance, because your podcast is a great example. I listen for the way it makes me feel. It makes me feel smarter. It makes me feel more equipped. It makes me feel like I have a better toolkit to go out and manage my life. And uh, every episode, without exception, has that outcome when I listen. Oh, shucks. Thank you. You're (laughs) welcome. I just put out a big survey,
1: and and I asked a question along those lines in terms of what are your recurring thoughts and feelings when you're um, experiencing the show. And I think I believe that more and more from marketing. And that's been part of my, well... (laughs) This isn't about Pete's journey to learn
2: marketing. Well, but we're singing the same tune, that as Seth says, it's not about what you make, it's about what it'll do for you and the way it makes you feel. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And, and I think that that's true of everything. Even when it's a rational purchase, it's like, oh, this is a wise investment because it will save me money or make me money. So it's money on top of money. Of course, logically, that's just better to do than to not do. It's like, yeah, but why bother? Why do you even care? What's money doing for you in the first place? It's like, exactly. oh, well, I feel secure and, and free and able to- Peace of mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> (laughs) Yeah. So I think Seth really is as brilliant as people say he
2: is. Well, not many people write a daily blog that has the followership that he has. And a good daily blog. Yeah. I'm (laughs) the one that reads it every day and they're not all A plus and neither are the things that I write, but there's enough A pluses to uh, keep reading and keep sharing
1: and um, let's see I don't, was I asking about a study or a quote or a book I don't even
2: <laughs> we got a little bit of everything <laughs> you asked about a piece of research so do you I don't know if you remember you and I talked about this uh, Journal of Applied Psychology that oh, came out maybe over a decade ago but they studied what it is that most drives the outcome in a professional relationship and they studied all of the variables in the equation from gender to age to educational background to theoretical orientation and they found that the the greatest driver of outcome in a professional relationship was the perception of connection within the first hour from the perspective of the client. And so if the client felt like there was a good connection in the first hour, the outcome of that professional relationship is going to be much stronger.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In a way that just makes me feel so much better. I thought about that many, many times since our conversation because it makes me feel better about, <laughs> I, I guess sometimes I think I'm like being real judgmental in terms of like I'm, I'm reading a book or listening to something. And it's just like, I
2: don't, just, I just don't like this guy. <laughs> right and and then when it re- when it resonates you have the opposite feeling it's like oh we are connected yes
1: and, and so then, and then i feel so bad it's like i don't like this guy i would to stop reading it it's like well, well pete you should like it take in broad perspectives from all sorts of, of different people that you like and that you dislike and then i go back to yeah but
2: steve told me that uh in the first hour <laughs> right in the first 10 pages of this book better grab me
1: Right. So even if I muscled through this book and hated every moment of it, it probably wouldn't deliver the goods for me just because I'm not resonating from the get go. Maybe I think they're scammy or unethical or fraudulent. And I do
2: a lot. As an author, Pete, I don't want you to have to muscle through any page <laughs> of my book. As our mutual friend Maui told me when we wrote Team Clock, you never want to give a reader any reason to put a bookmark in the book. You always want the reader to continue to turn pages.
1: Oh, yeah. Maui, episode number one. There you go. Uh, yeah. He's like, the cardinal Sid, I think he said, is being uh, boring. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Don't do that. Oh, inspiring, dude.
2: Okay. Well, how about a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job? favorite tool? I'm going to give you two. As a writer, I am a uh, devotee of the Fleisch Kincaid readability statistics and the options menu in Microsoft Word. I don't know if you use that, but it tells you not only how many words you've written, but how many sentences per paragraph, how many words per sentence, how many syllables Per word, and it tells you at what grade level you are writing at. And I try to keep all of my writing in the eighth to ninth grade level. Uh, It just keeps the book flowing and doesn't give people a reason to put a bookmark in any page. It keeps pages turning. Thank you. The second tool I would offer is I've become a uh, an owner of the HeartMath uh, wearable biofeedback tool, and so the app on your phone is called Inner Balance but it pairs with a Bluetooth connectable device that reads your heart rhythms. And if you want to, Uh, know how to manage your stress in real time. All you do is clip this thing onto your shirt and attach it to your earlobe and turn on your phone, and it will tell you in real time whether you're in a relaxed or a stressful state. And you can teach yourself uh, how to put yourself to a relaxed state at any time. And what I find is when I need to perform, whether that's my band at a wedding or whether that's writing a book that I want you to read, um, I do that at my best when I'm in a relaxed state.
1: Thank you. Yeah. And a favorite habit?
2: Uh, I put a little creative music into every single day, no matter whether that's five minutes or an hour. It opens new pathways.
1: And a particular nugget that uh, you share that really connects and resonates and gets quoted back to you
2: often. You know, I've gotten a lot of feedback on uh, the concept of renewal. When you think about teams and relationships as happening in cycles, you realize that there's always another chance to refresh something or to repair something. And so when you think about the things that happen in relationships and teams, anytime you add or subtract a teammate, you have a renewal. Anytime a conflict gets resolved, you have a renewal. Anytime an innovation alters the work of the team, you have a renewal. Every time you celebrate a success or a disappointment of a failure, you have a renewal. Every time a goal gets redefined, you have a renewal. And so you get these chances over and over to elevate your relationships and your teams.
1: And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
2: TeamClock.com, t e a m c l o c k kcom There's plenty on the website, and it's in the process of getting refreshed with the new book information, so we hope to make it even more beneficial for our readers.
1: And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: I have been asking people to continually assess their relationships and their teams for my entire career, and I want to make that simple. Ask three questions. In what stage are we right now? Why are we in that stage? And what should we do to move forward?
1: Well, Steve, once again, this has been a treat. I wish you lots of luck with the book, The Four Stages of a Team, and all your other adventures.
2: Thank you, Pete. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And I look forward to uh, all the other episodes you've created a tool for all of us. So thank you for that. And thanks for inviting me on again.
1: Boy, I really loved it when Steve was sharing those vulnerable real honest vignettes of real dialogues he's encountered from folks who'd say things like, you know, I think that's me. I think I'm the one people are talking about. The truth is I don't handle stress very well. I don't know what to do about it because when I'm stressed, I don't treat people very nicely. And please help me with that. (laughs) I mean, that's amazing. I mean, and for Steve, it's just commonplace. And I, I know the guy. I trust the guy. He's not just like making it up. Like these are they're real encounters that he has with teams. And and I think that's so encouraging and hope buoying, buoying, uh, boosting, because you can really have folks make these transformations when they get honest about what's going on, what they're contributing to what's going on and how that can be renewed. That's so cool. So so don't give up hope. <laughs> there may well be an opportunity for folks to turn things around. If they seem disengaged, if they seem lazy, if they seem not into it, if they seem mean, it might very well be possible to turn it around. Or it might not. And then they could exit, you know, very well and smoothly and safely. But, you know, keep up the good fight. So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F458. If you haven't already, I hope you'll punch subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It is Diana Wu David. She is talking about how to future-proof your career. Until next time, peace.
0: Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com you can find this episode's transcript and links as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered.